Welcome to Healthcare Rounds. I'm your host, John Marchica, CEO of Darwin Research Group and faculty associate at the Arizona State University College of Health Solutions. Here we explore the vast and rapidly evolving healthcare ecosystem with leaders across the spectrum of healthcare delivery. Our goal is to promote ideas that advance the quadruple aim, including improving the patient experience, improving the health of populations, lowering the cost of care, and attaining joy in work. Please send your questions, comments, or ideas for Healthcare Rounds to podcast at darwinresearch.com. And if you like what you hear, please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get started. Dr. David Stewart is the head of the Division of Medical Oncology and a professor of medicine at the University of Ottawa. He is also the author of A Short Primer on Why Cancer Still Sucks. He received his MD from Queen's University in Kingston, followed by training in internal medicine at McGill University and in medical oncology in the Department of Developmental Therapeutics at the UT MD Anderson Cancer Center. After completing his training at MD Anderson, he moved to the University of Ottawa in 1980 and served as Chief of Medical Oncology at the Ottawa Civic Hospital from 1989 to 1999. He then returned to the Department of Thoracic and Head and Neck Medical Oncology at MD Anderson Cancer Center from 2003 to 2011, where he served as Chief of the Section of Experimental Therapeutics, Chair Ad Interim, Deputy Chair, and Director of Translational Research. He returned back to Ottawa in 2011 to assume the position of head of the Division of Medical Oncology at the Ottawa Hospital and the University of Ottawa. So, Dr. David Stewart, um, by now, with the magic of podcast recording, as I, as I often say, we would have read in a little brief bio. But um, so thank you for, for talking to us today. Appreciate it. But I, I, I'd like for you to just orient us a little bit and talk a little bit about your your background. Uh, okay, I'm a medical oncologist. I've been in the field for a long, long time. I started my training back in 1976 and have uh, been on staff as medical oncologist uh, uh, since uh, 1978. Uh, um, first at MD Anderson Hospital in Houston uh, until 1980, then back up here in Ottawa, Canada from uh, 1980 till 2003 then back at MD Anderson from 2003 till 2011, and back up here in Ottawa, Canada from 2011 till now, and I do not plan to move again. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Canadian um, initially, I grew up just south of Ottawa. Uh, Love living in Houston, but I like living in Ottawa even better. It's a beautiful area. I've I've only been there once, but it's beautiful. Um, So... uh, a lot of what we're going to be talking about today are topics that um, are in your book, which is excellent. Uh, and it was surprising because I thought it would be only for the consumer. But as someone who does um, healthcare market research, I found a lot of the content, not done with it yet, but a lot of it to be very useful. I, I kind of focused on the latter part of the book. But first question is, why write it? I mean, obviously, you've, you've done other articles and other things. Why, why did you decide to write this book? Why can't, why cancer still sucks? Okay. So uh, the, the reason I wrote it, uh, I'd been telling my wife for, for many, many years I was going to, and then finally got around to starting it in 2019. And it was two major reasons. The first one uh, is to inform patients, uh, to give them something they could read that helped them better understand their illness. 
because what patients tell me is that uh, uncertainty is uh, is very very difficult. Uh, they would rather have bad news than uncertainty because if they got bad news, then they at least have, they can figure out what they have to do with it. Whereas uncertainty, it's paralyzing and, uh, and can be very disconcerting. Uh, so that uh, gives uh, patients power by giving them information so that they can better understand things. That was the first reason. The second reason is that I've long been concerned with systems issues, uh, why the uh, why the whole overall system does not work better uh, as far as new drug development. Why does it take uh, way too long? It takes an average of 12 years to develop a new drug from discovery until marketing, and that's way too long because um, a lot of patients who could have benefited from the drug will die uh, before the drug is ever approved. And also the same things that, that to prolong uh, the duration of uh, of time it takes also greatly increase the expense of um, of developing new drugs and the cost of developing new drugs has gone up much faster than inflation and uh, those costs then have to be recouped once uh, the drug is marketed and so it's it bears a very direct um, uh, bears very directly on why new drugs are so expensive because uh, the cost of developing them so is so expensive at the same time that with personalization of therapy uh, the number of people that uh, that can be used on is is decreasing, it's narrowing, so it's, it works much better in those that it's used in, but fewer, so that uh, you have to recoup the cost from a smaller number of patients, and therefore the costs have to be very high. Uh, and then there are al also other things, uh, so that uh, um, again, I worked um, for a total of twelve and a half years out of my career. Uh, at MD Anderson Hospital in Houston, and the rest of it here in Ottawa, Canada, uh, and both systems have major issues. As I as I say in the book, uh, I love both systems. And I hate both systems. Uh, uh, they uh, they both have strong points, but they also have both have major weaknesses. Um, and uh, well, well, we're we're going to get into those here in, in just a second. I just had a, a quick thing I wanted to tell you. Um, I was actually interviewing another oncologist for a, a research project. And, um, and I said, and I'd written a book years ago, kind of a business book and I write for a living pretty much. So that's all I do all, most of the day. And I said, I've got this great idea because we do a lot of work in, at least on the systems themselves, studying these systems. I said, I've got this great idea for a book, the development of, you know, the history and the development of these new medicines and all that. And he interrupted me and he's like, oh. Uh, yeah, that's already been written. The emperor of all maladies, and it won a Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> and so I was like, "All right, well, I guess I'm gonna have to have a different, um, different idea uh, for for my next book, rather than being one." And that I read actually, and it was absolutely terrific. Um, took me a couple of weeks to get through it, but it was it was very good. So before we get into some of the problems um, with your background in research. Um, for many, many years, as you pointed out, if you were to look back over, let's say, like the last 10 years, uh, what would you say are some of the more positive, significant developments um, in medical oncology or um, even specifically in lung cancer, which I know that's one of your specialty areas? Uh, yeah, so so the uh, certainly the personalization of therapy that's actually been happening for twenty years, but it just keeps on getting better and better. Uh, so with molecular testing uh, in adenocarcinoma, lung malignant melanoma, and a few others, uh, that's had a very marked impact on uh, on benefit of the therapy, uh, being able to uh, assess a mutation in a, in a tumor, and then come up with a drug that will specifically target that mutation. Uh, so that's a major one, and then immunotherapy, uh, so that um, 
I was very skeptical about immunotherapy only because early in my very early in my training and in my career, uh, uh, immunotherapy was about to cure everything. So there was a, a huge amount of hype and hyperbole, and then but it was all empty, and uh, and it really did hardly anything at all. And then the immune checkpoint inhibitors came along in 2014, 2015, uh, and they converted me from a skeptic into a believer. So, uh, so that um, the with the immune checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, they work in 10 to 20 percent of patients uh, with a wide range of different cancers, so that they've <clears throat> they work against a broader range of cancers than any systemic therapy for cancer uh, since cisplatin uh, came uh, along in the late 1970s, uh, and uh, they can have a very marked benefit uh, in individual patients, and it can be very prolonged benefit in some patients. Uh, so, and and also they're usually well tolerated, although not not always well tolerated, uh, but they've had. Um, they've had a, a, a very marked positive effect. So getting back to uh, the clinical trials, and I know that you've worked as a researcher in this area, in our, in our pre-interview, we talked about some of your frustrations. So broadly speaking, how can we make the overall, the general process of clinical research um, better or faster in, uh, in cancer research? Uh, so first of all, it has to be recognized as a problem uh, so that um, unfortunately, many oncologists and many people and many fields regard it as being inevitable and, uh, the, and, and tell me it cannot be fixed, but it can be. Uh, so that right now, it's likely on the, on the uh, highway, uh, the research highway to develop a new drug, there are thousands of speed bumps. And each of those speed bumps was put there for a very good reason because of um, problems in, um, in clinical research, either in patient consent or, uh, or data integrity or uh, uh, the um, toxicity that was not recognized or things like that. So there, every one of those speed bumps is there for a reason, uh, but they were put there to solve a problem uh, without any consideration, without any real consideration about the other problems that they would cause to uh, to uh, slow down um, the progress. So we've got this, um, this uh, research freeway. Well, it's like if you had a freeway and you were having a lot of people getting killed in car accidents, and uh, so that, uh, the conclusion was that if you put it in speed bumps to slow the um, uh, the speed limit down to five miles an hour, then that would solve the problem. And it does. It gets rid of, um, it uh, markedly reduces uh, the number of fatal traffic accidents, but it also markedly prolongs how long it takes you to get anywhere. And it markedly increases costs and it um, increases frustrations, making sure that it means that some people will, will quit long before they get to where they were going. Uh, and that's what happens with uh, new drugs. Uh, many of them, uh, the clinical trials are just never completed uh, because it uh, it takes too long and is is uh, is too expensive. Uh, so that we need to uh, examine the whole process. And what I what I say uh, is that um, we need a process like uh, uh, the autobahn in Germany. So I don't know whether you've ever driven on the autobahn. But it's um, freeways that have, have unlimited speed limits, so uh, you can drive as fast as you want to. And uh, so, when my wife and I were over there a few years ago, driving around in our Audi, uh, driving along a rented Audi, uh, going 100 miles an hour, we'd have to pull over back over into the right-hand lane because there would be uh, BMW closing out on us, going at 140 miles an hour. And um, and uh, this was perfectly legal, and yet they've got one of the lowest 
traffic fatality rates in Europe uh, because they've got smart regulation. Uh, and that's what we need is we need smart regulation that uh, that um, um, that uh, does all the jobs that the current regulation does to to um, uh, protect safety and uh, data integrity and uh, and all those things. Uh, but at the same time, that fosters very rapid speed. And uh, th these things are, are possible. We know that they're possible. Uh, I've, I've known for a long time it's possible because I see the, the what these things are doing. And I, and I know uh, other ways that we could do uh, that uh, could speed things up. Uh, but the things that really proves it is po possible is uh, just COVID, uh, the COVID vaccines. Uh, so that uh, the average vaccine in the past uh, would take uh, 7, 8, 10, 12 years to develop. Uh, and the fastest one ever was the mumps vaccine at four years. COVID comes along and we're able to do it in one year just because people decided it was important. And that's that's really what we need is for people to decide that, that it's important. If we decide that, that it's important, then we can do it. Uh, but it needs um, global buy-in uh, that this is really something very, very important because, I mean, cancer uh, kills far more people than COVID does. Uh, I mean, the, the, the probability of dying from COVID was about 1.3% uh, of Canadians who got COVID died from it. Uh, but 37% um, uh, uh, of, of Canadians to get develop cancer die from it. Uh, so, and there are far more Canadians that are killed by cancer than by COVID. Uh, so that, um, so we really need uh, to uh, to pay attention to this. And and also the the other huge reason we need to do it is, as I said, uh, the reason that things are so expensive is the same thing that slow things down are also what are making them so expensive. And, uh, and uh, the cost of these medications are exploding. Uh, some countries say that they're not going to be able to afford to uh, buy them anymore. And, and, the, and the biggest problem of all, if, if, if uh, everybody stops buying these drugs, uh, then there's no more profits on them. So no more uh, money that can be invested. And who would invest in new drugs if, there's, if they can't um, uh, recoup the cost and make a profit? So, uh, so sure. investment stops and, um, and progress comes to a halt. So this is, a, this is something we've got to solve. Well, um, you, you just touched on about five of my questions on my interview guide. So, um, and I did read the analogy of the Autobahn. So, um, how is it? How is that a useful analogy for how we treat therapies for lethal disease? And maybe a follow up to that is, you go through. I mean, you went very fast right there, but in your book, you go through step by step of all the things that need to happen um, in a pretty detailed fashion. So it's almost like a, a framework for regulatory improvement. Um, can you can you talk a little bit in more detail about what those steps are and how you think that um, clinical trials, for example, should be separate for lethal diseases versus non-lethal. Uh, yes. So that, uh, for example, I've got no problem at all if it takes a long time to uh, uh, develop a new therapy for acne or for hemorrhoids or something like that. Uh, but for, if it's for a lethal disease, when people are going to die and they don't get the therapy, then we need we need speed. Um, and um, so that um, for non-lethal diseases. Safety has to be paramount. Safety has to be very, very important. Uh, but um, the uh, the most dangerous thing for people, a person with lethal disease, is not the treatment you're going to treat them with. It's the disease itself that's killing them. Um, and uh, so we need to appreciate that and um, and uh, and tackle it like that. And so there's a range of uh, different things. For example, the the uh, the animal toxicology studies that are done uh, to bring a drug into um, into trial. So they can cost um, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars or a million dollars to do the toxicology studies. 
that can take a year or two while you're, that delays uh, getting the, the drug into humans. Uh, but it's been demonstrated in the past that all you really need to know is the dose of the drug that kills 10% of rodents. And if you kill, if you take one-tenth of that dose and use that as your first dose in humans, that will usually be a safe dose. Uh, so you can sidestep all this time and all this expense um, um, to, um, to get it into, uh, into patients fast. Uh, the other thing also is that uh, then when you uh, rate the clinical, uh, clinical trial and, um, and all the steps that it has to go through uh, before it's approved. So, so there, uh, uh, David Dills um, uh, wrote um, uh, some papers a few years ago uh, showing that um, it can take it takes hundreds upon hundreds of steps uh, to take a, a study from your first concept that you want to do it until you get it approved. And many of those steps are not uh, value added. They're just not value added, uh, but they take time and, uh, and add cost. Uh, so we need to tackle that. And, and also then uh, the study will have to go through the uh, institutional review boards at several different uh, institutions. Um, and what they, they will often uh, come up with different answers about what needs to be done. But I mean, when I was at MD Aronson, I was uh, served as an alternate in one of the institutional review boards there. And I can tell you that the study would come along and people would be pouring through it, trying to find one word in the consent form uh, that, needed to be, that needed to be changed. And then they sent it back and said, okay, uh, change that word and then submit it to us uh, next month and we'll have another look at it. And this would happen over and over again, and just all these things that um, that would just slow approval. That again, were not they were not value added, and people at the IRBs not having any concept uh, that um, that by them holding it up, uh, this was costing lives because this was delaying uh, the these drugs being uh, being approved. Um, and also the fact that uh, for for new drugs, uh, for example, for 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 targeted therapies. So maybe one out of uh, 500 patients may have that mutation that uh, you that you're looking for, and so if you take this uh, this protocol and you put it through your IRB, uh, and it can cost you thousands of dollars to do it and take you months and months of, uh, and then because it's an uncommon uh, uh, tumor, uh, then you'll never see a patient that uh, to uh, to go on that uh, to go on that drug, and so it's all wasted effort. Uh, but then somebody else, uh, you'll get another patient with a different mutation, and and you haven't even started process to get that one through. Uh, so we need a, 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 what, what I refer to as just-in-time activation. So you see a patient with that mutation uh, and uh, you go online, find where the study is, and you rapidly activate it because you're a qualified investigator. Uh, and uh, within uh, within a day or two, uh, you've got the study up and running because uh, because it's geared to, to make this happen. Uh, the uh, what what uh, uh, the usual way of doing that now is if a patient wants it, then they have to go on and live in a different city, and they may be stuck in a different city for the rest of their lives uh, just to go on this um, this drug that may or may not help them. Um, and uh, so it's just not practical. It costs more fortune, and they're away, away from family. And friends we, we need to uh, we need to fix this the documentation the documentation is horrendous uh, uh, so uh, so uh, all this documentation that is not value-added much of it is just stored away in boxes and is, is never used and and uh, so that you know the there are uh, research people will fill out the forms 
and then the uh, the clinical research organization will uh, will uh, then come back with queries and uh, uh, and say this is a matter of uh, of utmost safety. Was it on day five or day six that the patient's mild fatigue got better? You're gonna, we're going to kill patients. We don't need this, and so we you need to correct this and you need to get into the system when it doesn't make any difference at all. And uh, so uh, this is what's really driving the cost as much as anything is a massive documentation uh, that is not um, uh, that is excessive and and uh, and uh, needs to be done in a different way uh, so for the, for the documentation we need uh, uh, systems like Watson the like the IBM's Watson artificial intelligence to go through the chart and get it into the, into it without uh, paying a fortune for people to um, to sit there and and uh, enter uh, enter all this data uh, other things like uh, uh, to uh, to set up a, a lab test to see whether a patient was eligible for a study or not Back in the early days of target therapies, the test would be done in a research lab. And um, if uh, they identified a patient that uh, could go on it, then we could use that to get the patient on a study. Now it has to be done in a clean certified lab. So the test is going to take, cost you $100,000 to set up. And it's going to take a year to set it up before you can put the first patient on the study and before you even have any idea uh, whether the test is of any value or not to uh, to um, to identify patients that can need it. I could go on and on and on and on. Uh, so that all these things that are well-meaning, uh, they, they're done because of um, a um, uh, one um, uh, problem that was identified that people thought we have to avoid this problem. But we need to find come up with ways uh, to do this without massively slowing things down, because uh, because these are all done for safety. But safety safety kills. This safety kills uh, by delaying the therapies that can save lives. So the question is, um, you're obviously very passionate about this, um, have a high level of understanding, direct experience uh, on on uh, what the problems are. My question is, you know, certainly here in the U.S., you've got the FDA and other regulatory agencies. You've got um, uh, each institution having their own regulations that I suppose are kind of they all kind of look alike in some way or another because of fixing those um, those problems that you mentioned. Practically speaking, how do how do you affect the changes that you want to affect? Is it you know, getting to the cancer moonshot people. I mean, uh, how how do you actually get done with these massive bureaucracies in Washington as well as at each of these individual institutions? Uh, so it's very simple. Uh, we just have to have the population say that this has to be done, um, and so the, the moonshot um, uh, is a, a good uh, good start. Uh, but um, but there needs to be a consensus across the population that this has to be that this has to be done just like there was consensus across the population that we needed rapid uh, COVID vaccines uh, because it's only if we've got that uh, uh, that widespread consensus among the population uh, that it can happen because uh, I mean like uh, when the Twenty First Century Cures Act for example came came along uh, again it was uh, designed to try to address this. Uh, there were um, there were several people uh, that were uh, that were uh, going to say no this is dangerous we ha- we can't let this happen we've got to we've got to stop this and and, and also there are lots of um, oncologists that uh, say uh, no we need all this uh, these regulations and clinical research uh, to make sure that there are no mistakes making uh, but um, but we've just got to 
to uh, change the focus uh, that the number one priority has to be progress. Uh, in lethal diseases, it has to be progress, just like we did for, for COVID. Um, and so part of, the, uh, part of the thing that slowed it down, in fact, was that somewhere about uh, 20 years ago, uh, there was agreement that there had to be harmonization of regulations across countries. Uh, so that if we did a clinical trial in Canada and, and got uh, developed some data, uh, that then that data could be used in the United States as well uh, for for um, their, to approve drugs there. And so that was harmonization across um, a huge number of countries. And it sounds like a good idea, except it means that then none of us can go any faster than what uh, the slowest country is going, than, than what this um, this uh, harmonization uh, permits. So when, when that happened, suddenly we went from being able to run clinical trials with no data managers. I mean, back in the 1990s, I could, I could write a protocol myself. I could get it through an IRB myself. I could do all the data management myself. I could publish it myself. And it would not cost me anything uh, to do this. But as soon as the harmonization came along, uh, where all these uh, safety steps were needed, suddenly that became impossible. And it slowed everything down and meant you could not do clinical research unless you had a substantial amount of funding. And where does the funding come from? Well, you can write a grant and you got um, maybe a 10% chance of the grant getting funded and it will cover part of the cost of these massive costs. Or you can go to drug companies. So it meant that pharmaceutical companies were put squarely in the driver's seat because they're the only ones with the pockets deep enough to pay for all the things that uh, were demanded by this uh, by this harmonization. That was not the intent, but that was what uh, essentially happened uh, with the uh, with the harmonization. Uh, so so that we need a consensus that this needs to happen. And again, the reason we, we know it can happen is uh, again the example of AIDS uh, back um, uh, the, so that uh, the AIDS activists made sure that AIDS treatments developed very rapidly. Uh, so there's actually a, 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 a an advocate, a cancer advocate uh, here in Canada, Louise Binder, who years before she was an AIDS a, a cancer advocate, she was an AIDS advocate. And uh, what she tells me is that uh, one of the huge problems with cancer patients is that they're just too polite, whereas the AIDS patients were mad. Uh, they, mm -hmm. they, they, there would have been a, a group that had been discriminated against, and um, and um, and so they were just mad, and they got mobilized to do it. There's been no mobilization of cancer patients to um, to do the same thing, and the, and there needs to be uh, because that's what it's going to, going to take. Essentially, our governments need permission to move faster uh, because uh, everybody sees. A, a, a catastrophe like Viox uh, or things like that. And then, then they demand greater safety and they do not see the flip side of that, uh, how this markedly reduces uh, uh, progress, slows progress, and how this massively drives up cost. Uh, so we need the population overall uh, to understand this and to demand that this is what, how we approach things. Well, <clears throat> Dr. Stewart, I hope that uh, this little 30 minute slice that, that Maybe just one listener out there is going to get mobilized and go talk to a second person. And, um, you know, I mean, the, it, it's really very revealing some of the things that you uh, write about and the, the research that you did on those 27 clinical trials that showed, you know, how much uh, could have been saved or how many, I think you did that in person years. Uh, it was just amazing. Yeah. Um, but uh, fascinating book. I'm not, I know we're not here to plug your book. You're here to talk about the topic, but for anybody who's interested as a, you know, just a regular consumer or somebody who's in my field, I think they'd find it to be um, very interesting. So again, um, thank you for, for taking the time to speak today. 
Yeah, and again, the name of the book is A Short Primer and Why Cancer Still Sucks. And you can get it through Amazon Books or my website, whycancerstillsucks.com. Excellent. Thank you again. On behalf of all of us at Darwin Research Group, thanks for listening. Healthcare Rounds is produced and engineered by me, Sam Yates, with theme music by John Marchica. Darwin Research Group leverages the power of information to enhance human health by providing advanced market intelligence and in-depth customer insights to healthcare executives. Our strategic focus is on healthcare delivery systems and the global shift toward value-based care. Check us out at darwinresearch.com. See you next round.